The views and opinions expressed on Analyze This are entirely those of the on-air participants and do not reflect those of the station's board, management, staff, or underwriters. this and we definitely want to thank uh, the Virgin Islands Children's Museum for um, what they do on behalf of the uh, people of the Virgin Islands specifically uh, our young people. We got uh, two shows tomorrow night <clears throat> on uh, WTJX Channel 12 Becoming Frederick Douglass um, that's at 9pm uh, Okay, Becoming Frederick Douglass explores the inspiring story of how a man born into slavery, transformed himself into one of the most prominent statesmen and influential voices for democracy in American history, using his writings, images, and words to follow his rise to prominence against all odds. The film is rooted in the singular truth of Douglas's life, his insistent, insistence on controlling his own narrative and his lifelong determined pursuit of the right to freedom and complete equality for Africans Americans. Becoming Frederick Douglass, Saturday, February twenty fifth, nine p.m. on Channel Twelve. The Liberator. So that's what he was known as, Frederick Douglass. And then uh, at ten thirty, Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom, goes beyond the legend and meet the inspiring woman who repeatedly risked her own life and freedom to liberate others from slavery. Born 200 years ago in Maryland, Harriet Tubman was a conductor of the Underground Railroad, a Civil War scout, nurse, and spy, and one of the greatest freedom fighters in our nation's history. Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom, tomorrow night, Saturday, February 25th at 10.30 p.m. here on Channel 12. So you get Frederick Douglass at 9 the Liberator, and then you get the Underground Railroad leader, Harriet Tubman, at 10.30 tomorrow night. Visions of Freedom, okay? So, uh, that's how we at. Uh, sure, the show running, show running like clockwork this morning, but nice and smooth, you know what I mean? So, I like in that. We got the Department of Planning and Natural Resources in the mix, uh, Mr. Engineer. We good? So, we get to that. I got another program update. We're going to drop that one um uh, after the next break and all that good stuff. So, Department of Planning and Natural Resources under the leadership of uh, Commissioner Jean-Pierre Oriol. Morning, Commissioner. How are you? Doing well, doing well this morning. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we're good now. We're good now. Good to oh, hear your great. voice. How are you? Good, good. I'm doing well, thanks. How's the department? Well, we're coming along. You know, I think this is uh, going to be a, a good year for DPNR. We've got a lot of projects. We've... Uh, Got a lot of things happening, and um, we just going to be out there more visible to the public this year, I believe. Okay, good. No, you said a lot of things happening. That's one of the reasons why we got you on today. So let me, um, let me, let me take care of the housekeeping early, early on. Something happening this weekend or um, Monday or Tuesday? Oh, well, starting next week, Tuesday, 
uh, we are going to be having uh, town hall meetings across the territory with respect to the comprehensive land and water use plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're inviting the public to be part of that process. We want everybody to come out, give their input, listen to the things that the information, the data that we have gathered uh, and contribute. Um, we want people to be part of the process moving from the start uh, rather than, you know, us getting to a certain point And then now we're in a mode of trying to detract from the progress that we have made. So, um, you know, this, these are our islands. We are uh, in an unprecedented era of having $8 billion to transform these islands. And so now is the time to make sure that we are putting the planning processes in place to ensure that this is being done at the appropriate scale and for what we want to see these islands look like 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the line. So. Now, I know you'll be into the state of the territory, right? Yes. The governor, the governor actually said that that number is close to $12 billion now. No? Remember, we got, remember we, <laughs> it, got some, it, we got some additional money for, for um, the, you know, water, the water line and sewage and all that stuff. You were bragging correct. about that. I mean, it sounds great. Um, but one of the key key factors in being able to actually spend that money is whether the match waiver is applied or not. Mm-hmm. You know, we we saw when the governor was uh, in D.C. Uh, for the IGIA and NGA meetings and meeting with the Natural Resources Committee that that the president signed an executive order that says you know two hundred thousand or less is automatically waived for match. Uh, but then the agencies have the discretion to waive. And and that's kind of been like that for the most part. Um, so, you know, if, if the hospital is is $1 billion, then coming up with that 10% match when your operating budget for the government is $900 million, like where, you know, that where's that money going to come from? So... It it sounds great, but we need that match waiver badly from the federal government. No, that's 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 a policy that's a policy uh problem for the lack of a better term that yeah. they need to you know, they need to address because it's not realistic, you know. Cool. Um, you know, okay, you're, you're making ten billion available for us, but um, you know, I go find a billion and I own. So what do you want me to do? Go borrow a billion dollars so that we could be eligible for for ten billion? That don't make any sense. Correct. You check Correct. so. But I just, I just want you to be a little. I, I was just asking you to be consistent with what the boss said when, sure, he, when, sure, he, when sure. he was talking to the people that it ain't eight billion or more. It's closer yeah. to, it's closer to eleven to, to twelve the, billion. Okay. Yeah. So, Hospitals, so that, that, that's that's all I was doing there. All of those things. Sure. Correct. Correct. And and by the way, um, you are in DPNR. So what's the deal, um, from your perspective with waste management as it relates to that additional monies for our um sewer system and um. Um, and then now that infrastructure that's going to be territory-wide. I know the St. Croix monies have already been set aside and St. Thomas, St. John going to be very close behind. What's your take on that? Because that falls under your purview, not necessarily from a directional standpoint, but you are um, DPNR, which is natural resources. Yes. So, uh, again, the the ability to to improve all of our treatment systems, whether they be drinking water, wastewater, storm water, um, the ability to uh, improve that infrastructure is going to be 
huge for the territory in actually even improving the outputs that make it to our coastal waters and in our coastal areas. Um, you know, we know that there's leaks in these lines. We know that they're, some of them are 50, 60, 70 years old, and they're in dire need of replacement. Um, so we're excited about being having the opportunity as, as a territory to be able to replace those lines. And then including prudent replacement, the bipartisan infrastructure law also provides monies through DPNR to waste management to be able to do new uh, stormwater and wastewater systems. They provide new uh, money for new drinking water lines. There's even a separate portion apportionment to replace old lead lines. So um, it, it really is an unprecedented amount of money. And, and this is also money that does not have match associated with it. So this should be the money that as a territory we're tapping into now for our planning, for our design, our A&E. Uh, and moving forward because we don't have to match that requirement as well. That, that's, that's, that's good news on that front. Are you a member of the WAPA board? Not of the WAPA board. DPNR used to be, uh, but that was prior to 2015. What happened to your knowledge? Uh, I, I do not know. <laughs> because because that would be a logical a logical assignment a statutory assignment for the for the Department of Planning and Natural Resources Commissioner. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We, um, someone from DPNR is on the waste management board, but we're not on the WAPA board. Okay, we got. See, go figure that one out. Well, I guess you know one of the issues was that um, you know as being a member of the legislature, we didn't want to burden or statutorily burden commissioners with being on boards, and in some instances, you had um, commissioners who were on three and four boards. Uh, so, so I think that was the the thinking behind that. But um, your your agency plays such an important part um, with with infrastructure um, for obvious reasons. Um, I, I would think um, you, being, you, you being on the WAPA board would be a good move. But that's the governor's call. So me me getting into that one there. Um, let, let let me ask this question, right? And I want to get this out of the way early before we get to the comprehensive land and water use plan. What's the deal with our libraries? Um, one of the discussions that we have on our table talk that we have on Mondays with the former senators, uh, Laybord, Cole, and Russell, is that um, we don't really, um, our children don't really have the benefits of accessing the library and the love for it like we did when we were younger. And I have this conversation with Tony Dwayne Henry as well. Um, what can we do uh, to get our libraries um, back to where they should be, um, operational, things of that nature. Sure. Um, so uh, as you're aware, you know, the libraries all are subject to repairs as a result of the storm. Um, actually, Peterson Library was closed prior to the storms uh, just from a simple lack of capacity to be able to operate the facility. Um, we're making strides right now to fin have the work on Florence Williams finished by May of this year. And so once that facility is finished, then the contractor who is working on Florence Williams also won the bid to do the repairs to the Peterson Library. 
And so we'll be heading to go and, and start the repairs there as well. Um, at this point in time right now, we have enough staff to operate one facility. We've actually posted vacancies um, for the St. Croix district several times now uh, over the last 20, uh, 24 months actually um, that have not been fulfilled. So we're going to have to revamp how we're take going about that search. Um, but once the libraries are ready to open, then you know we'll be opening those facilities beginning again, hopefully with Florence Williams beginning in May. Sproul Library um, is just the, the punch list items right now. So we're looking at opening the facility in April of this year. Uh, and the Turnbull Library remains open. Um, that's the next big project that has to go out and, and for repair. So it will be closed um, for a minimum of six months while those repairs are going to take place. So the commitment to getting our libraries to where we want them and need them to be is real? Is real. Uh, again, we will be opening Florence Williams. Uh, my fingers crossed are for May of this year. Uh, I definitely want them open uh, for June when the summer programs start so that we can encourage some of those programs to bring the students through the library system and be able to play a role um, in the betterment and enrichment, particularly with learning and literacy in the summertime. Uh, and Florence Williams being open is going to be the start of that. Um, you know, nowadays the, the contractors, and, and this, is a, this is the issue that we have with all this work that's taking place, is that unless we can get new contractors to become part of the recovery, you know, putting their systems in place to meet all the FEMA subcontractor requirements, those types of things, um, then it's going to be the same contractors that are doing three, four, five jobs simultaneously. And so you then have to schedule how they go about moving from one facility to the next. So um, that's the case that DPNR is in right now. As a matter of fact, the contractor that is working on Florence Williams, he also has two other contracts for DPNR for other repairs as well, including the Peterson Library. So it's very important for us to encourage the contractors out there that they need to be part of this $12 billion transformation and to meet with P&P, meet with Public Works, find out what these requirements are, particularly for the women and minority owned businesses to play a role because there is so much work to be done. We, we can't just see four or five people taking all of the work or else it's going to be at a very, very slow pace. Well, you know, that's, that's unfortunate, um, Komish, um, that, that a particular project um, has to wait for one to be completed um, for, it to, for, for that project to start and commence, you know, the, um, so are we, uh, I know we got a shortage of engineers. That was a big issue, engineers, um, that the government, that the administration identified early on in 2019. Um, but are, are you saying that um, con we, have a, we have a shortage with respect to contractors in terms of their ability to, to meet the, the, the bonding requirements and things of that nature? Yes. Or, or no, I'm not saying that there's a shortage 
I believe that there are contractors out there. Mm-hmm. I think what there's a shortage of is an, the eligible contract. Eligibility. Okay. Yeah. So, for example, DPNR put the bid for, for Peterson Library out three times. And each time, so the first bid came in, we had two bidders. The second time it went out, there was no bidders. And then this third time there was one bidder. Um, we put the we put the bid for the repairs to the Gallows Bay Pier out three times. The first time there was no bidders. The second time there was one bidder at four times the amount of the estimated cost. And then this third one came in a little bit high, but enough reasonable enough for us to move forward. And and so these types of things now, you know, if you see in a project that's five, six hundred thousand dollars estimated, we should have more contractors eligible to participate in that mm-hmm. because, because they exist in the territory. Wow. Well, wow, that's you know something. I'm glad that you you we, we actually went here. I didn't know it was going to get to that. Um, but the, the, the one thing that we. You know, we brag about on this particular program is that the the content is informational and not confrontational. And I'm glad that you have informed the public as to um, the hardships that the, the your agency um, is dealing with. It, it isn't it isn't about because you know when people when people hear um, <clears throat> that projects ain't going forward, they want to know something gone wrong and all that. In this case, we have people who didn't apply for, for 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 contracts, right? That's what you're saying for bids. Exactly. Wow. It's not just a DPNR. Yeah. Government wide. Government wide. Okay. Good. Okay. We'll take a break. We got uh, Commissioner John Pierre Oriel from Department of Planning and Natural Resource joining us. Um, you on Saint Thomas? Yes, I'm on Saint Thomas. Yes, Saint Thomas. Okay, good. So when you come back, you could give me a word update as well. We'll take a break. Be back right after this. struggled with finding safe spaces for your children to meet up and learn through play and social interaction? Teen Time at the VI Children's Museum offers fun family learning for children ages 12 to 18 years old. A free program for all participants. For dates and information, 340-643-0366 or teentime at vichildrensmuseum.org. I'm Deepa Fernandez from Public Radio's Midday News magazine, Here and Now. We'll bring you all the news that happens between the morning headlines and the afternoon wrap-up, plus conversations with authors and artists, stories that affect you, maybe a story about you. So please join us for Public Radio's Midday News magazine, Here and Now. Weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 p.m. right here on WTJX FM 93.1. A new year equals new business opportunities at Bank of St. Croix. Bank of St. Croix offers deposit banking products, business online platforms, and commercial loans. 
their SBA lending department offers financing options and access to capital for businesses. Bank of St. Croix has two locations, one in Gallus Bay, 340-773-8500, and one in Peters Rest, 340-713-8500. Bank of St. Croix is an equal housing lender. BankofStCroix.com. Hi, I'm Peter Sagal. You spent the week listening to the news. Don't you think you deserve to show off what you've learned on Wait, Wait, We Give You a Chance to Impress Your Friends with Your Knowledge of International Incidents, Political Gaffes, and the Latest Advancement in German Nudists? You'll be the life of the party or the death. Either way, you'll make an impression and you can thank Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturdays at 1 p.m. and Sundays at 2 p.m. right here on WTJX FM 93.1, your NPR station in the Virgin Islands. And we're back here and analyze this. And we um, got uh, Commissioner uh, John Pierre Oreo from uh, Department of Planning and Natural Resources joining us uh, this morning. Good morning once again, Commissioner. Morning, morning. Um, beautiful day in St. Thomas because it's lovely over here. Yep, beautiful day. I'm actually seeing the outline of St. Croix from where I'm sitting. So. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, I, I like that. Uh, Commissioner, when, I was, when we were in the break, I was, I was thinking this. When we were growing up, I know, you know when you were on uh, the last time you gave us some background, uh, uh, born in Haiti and came here at a very young age. So you have Virgin Island, right? When we were Correct. when we were younger, public public works used to pave road, right? And and of course now you know the ecosystem has changed, and we contract out a lot of, if not all of, road pavings and all that stuff. But um, given what we're dealing with, you didn't think that maybe we need to consider. Um, a construction entity within the government of the Virgin Islands, when, when we get situations like what you just talking about, where projects are dependent on contractors being uh, available after, um, as soon as they finish one job, then they could go to the next one. Because the, at the end of the day, government's supposed to be providing services for the people. You know, um, so, never we have something called the Recovery Leaders Summit, mm-hmm. where the agencies get together to tackle some of the big ticket item issues because um you know we we have to look at scheduling we have to look at supply chain we have to look at um priorities because we we simply can't do everything at once and um if you listen to the the governor in the in the state of the territory he he really did lay out that this this year is our year of focus. This is the year that we really come together and look at some of the priority projects and timing and scheduling. We're meeting with the contractors to get their input as well. Um, but I wouldn't say that the government is not going to look at all the possibilities for what can and or needs to be done. I think the, the, the emphasis at least that I try and put out there because I mean, I don't have any 25 or $30 million projects, Mm -hmm. but what I try to do every time that I go out is really put out a message that, you know, there are a number of $2 million or less projects in the territory across several agencies and more people need to be involved in getting 
their share of that eligible money. Mm -hmm. And that takes off some of the burden. Why couldn't we have more people that are paving roads rather than, you know, two or three of the same companies in in each district and those types of things? So um, I think that if we are getting stagnant or seeing that there isn't that type of progress, then, you know, we'll, we'll have to look at what other types of scenarios can assist us in trying to move certain things forward. No, um, but we know that the really, really big projects, hospitals, schools, those types of things, um, those those are going to be likely like specialty construction and then subcontracting a lot out to uh, our local Virgin Islands contracting teams here as well. And and you're not you're not suggesting anything that's going to be reinventing the wheel. That's a reasonable response, right? Where we're attempting to, we're looking at, right, um, the realities of what's on the ground right now, right? Where um, we're short in particular areas on the private side, whether it be because of manpower, um, those who don't have the financial means, the, the, some may lack the administrative wherewithal. Um, and if that's the case, then uh, the government needs to look at, you know, putting in place um, requisite um, personnel and workforce um, so that you know they could help out in the meanwhile, right? Now I don't I don't want the public to think that we're anti-business because we're not, but you are articulating the fact that we are short on contractors that 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 meet specific mandated requirements, right? That's what you're saying. Yes, okay. but there are programs, you know, like um, one of the programs that that the the governor, with the help of the EDA, there's I believe like a bond securitization program where the government is actually where you would get your bond financing from for mm. the smaller projects. Mm -hmm. um, what we're trying to do, uh, I, I know when the Department of Labor is is working with UVI Cell and the other trainers, we're trying to create programs that, you know, it, it programs aren't always geared towards individuals or students. Um, so, you know, if, if there's a financial management component for a construction company, a system that needs to be in place for you to meet the FEMA eligibility requirements, then that's something where we want to design that program so that contractors can come in, take that program, and now adjust their business to meet the criteria, which makes them eligible. And then now they can take part. So there's a, just a number of things that you know through the recovery leader summit trying to create these ideas and then moving forward with how do we go about them um but the 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 goal is to make more virgin islanders eligible and participate in this transformation and we need more project managers we need more engineers we need more uh environmental specialists to do the um EAR. Do the EARs yeah. to, to do the, the requisite things. But you know, when it all, all of these all of these programs on the construction side, again, they're not all twenty five, thirty million dollar projects. No, no, you're right. There's things that people can become eligible for right away as well. Yeah, and, and speaking of the governor, you didn't you didn't mention the governor. The governor didn't announce I think it was like within like two or three weeks before the election something he wanted to do with, with home ownership, right? With, with, with constructions of homes and, and a yeah. modification there. I'm talking to the banks and using the EDA, 
right? I right. think that you mentioned the that, VX right? Slice program, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, at, at this time, you know, we're looking for some creativity, um, mental creativity. You know what I'm saying? I'm just looking at ways to create avenues um, to get j- jobs done, get more Virgin Islanders involved. Because, of course, when you if you got the transition costs um, from outside the territory, I mean, tra- transition work from outside the territory, that comes at an additional cost. So, you know, I'm just trying to rack my brains here on how we could, you know, maximize this recovery. Because, you know, our biggest concern as a territory is money going back to D.C., Right, right, and you don't you don't want that as an agency head. We don't want that as a people. The, the governor wouldn't want that as a governor. You know what I'm saying? Right. So that's what we got. Let me ask this question. Um, with respect to the Peterson Library, which is the McFarlane Peterson Library down in the West, right? Athlete McFarlane Peterson, right? Correct. Um, our tongue said, um, um, I got a question from one of the people here. Um, can is the uh, are the I'm like, I gotta speak properly here because I'm talking with one of the most articulate commissioners again. Um, <laughs> are, are the improvements slated for the uh, we could call it what, the AMP right? Athlete McFarland Peterson right? The AMP yeah. library right? Don't yeah. get it west. Uh, is it too late to comment? That's a question from our tongue, Fredrickson. Um. Comment, I don't com- know what they mean by comment. To comment as, as, as it relates to the slated improvements. Or, or is that a done deal and it's, it's going to be constructed as, as it went out when the contractor gets to the job? So the contract has not yet been drawn up, but the contract was issued as an invitation for bid. Okay. And so there are items that FEMA is paying for, and then there are other items that DPNR saw as necessary that weren't related to the storm. So FEMA is not paying for them. But if we're going to be spending X amount of dollars in there for repairs, then we're going to go ahead and fix it once, not come back later. So um, the the contract itself has not fully been executed. It's only been about, I believe, three weeks since the, um, the bid was closed and the bid was found to be responsive. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that it is a like a contract isn't a public comment type of thing. Um, but if there are repairs that need to be addressed, again, our goal is to make sure that we're doing it while the repairs are taking place. Um, you know, and it's my job to find the additional funding, apply for grants, those types of things to make sure that when we do the when we do the project, we do it right the first time and address all the needs before we open the facility. Okay, good. Now, um, so we've gotten the, the contracting part and the things that we're dealing with. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I got a question. Uh, we got we got a caller here that wanted to ask a question, but I want to ask you this real quickly. What's the deal with the sargasm? To the best of, um, the best of your We're ability. already seeing it. Uh, so there is a um, a satellite forecast that is now available as it relates to sargassum. Um, earlier this month, we actually received a forecast like they do for hurricane season that said it's going to be a high output season. Uh, and we saw some of that um, actually last week and into the weekend last week. So, um, you know, we haven't, you know, we notified WAPA. Uh, particularly with the issues that we had at Richmond last year. 
to be on alert, deploy any temporary booms, those types of things that are going to be necessary. Um, but we are anticipating a high output season. And, you know, we're just trying to, we, we have a number of projects related to Sargassum, working with the university, working with um, some other outside nonprofit groups in terms of trying to figure out ways to manage and handle the Sargassum. Um, I mean, for me personally, until you can turn it into an industrial commodity, the volume that we see here in the, in the, dish, in the territory is just going to overwhelm. And, um, you know, it, it breaks down pretty quickly, but it does have some after effects when it breaks down. And mm-hmm. so we just have to be able to manage the volumes as best as possible. Okay, good. Good morning, Carla. You have a question for the commissioner? Good morning, Carla. Yes, good morning, sir. How are you today? Fine, thank you. How are you? Yes, just fine, thank you. Thank you so much for having um, the commissioner on to give such great information. Appreciate I that. have a question. I have a question for him regarding libraries, and um, the question may sound strange, but it is this. Are we putting millions of dollars for building mausoleums? I ask it in that way because when I visit libraries in the States, they have transformed from just going out in and checking out books. And kids nowadays get most of their information from, from, from the Internet. They're not going into the library to research things. So... Is there a plan then to make these libraries more modern in terms of the services that they're order, offering to the communities? Otherwise, we're going to have just these mausoleums with just people sitting inside waiting for people to come in and check out books and nobody's coming. Yes, thank you for the question, ma'am. So it, it is our intention to actually modernize our libraries already as we speak. We've already started looking at removing some of the stacks themselves for the physical books um, and then trying to reprogram those spaces for other functions. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very invested in the early childhood uh, portion of things. I think books are great in terms of setting that foundation. Um, but even like if we look at our uh, Turnbull library, when it was designed, it was designed to have features with our archives it's designed to have seating features comfort seating features in order to use the spaces for like book clubs and offerings of that nature um there's a teen room section so that teens not only can focus on their schoolwork but then they get rewarded with video games and those types of things um so we can use the model of how the design for the turnbull library was laid out and start to apply them to the other libraries as well. We want to encourage people to come in into a relaxed atmosphere to be able to read in their quiet. There's free Wi-Fi available um, throughout the buildings. We partnered also with VINGN to enhance our Wi-Fi and our computer center capabilities. Um, but then we also want to encourage the use of the classrooms. We want nonprofit groups to engage in their meetings there. You know, we're, we're talking about having small kiosks with, you know, Virgin Islands coffee so that you could have a comfortable space and be able to get a small snack. Um, so all those things are on the table, ma'am, but uh, you are correct. We're, we're not trying to just open something and just have the same stacks of old books. Uh, and then very shortly, because uh, it's we've had this now 
for a few months, but we haven't rolled it out yet, is our online library program uh, is going to be announced very shortly to the public so that once you have a Virgin Islands Public Library card, you now have access to a digital library of catalogs, movies, magazine subscriptions, everything. Uh, and, and we are just trying to put the finishing touches on rolling that out. Well, I'm so happy to hear these plans. <laughs> Otherwise, it would really be just a waste of money uh, to, to repair these buildings, unless you're going to have a program that's also going to make it modern. Uh, the question is, why are you doing this? And that you also need then to, to publicize what's available at the library so that, so that uh, well, you have just said, the nonprofits can use it and uh, book clubs can go there. The public needs to know that these opportunities are available at the, at the, um, at the Turnbull. Uh, have you been checking also the usage in terms of people visiting the, the library at, at any time? Um, so I, you know, I actually sat in the Turnbull library for three years after the storm and we saw the usage and we saw it go up and we saw it go down. Uh, we know that the minim the usage currently is, is minimal. Um, the Turnbull library is, you know, extremely frigid. Unfortunately, not everything gets fixed as you want it at the same time. Um, and then now the other part was that the there is an issue with the software updates for our computer center. And so a lot of those. So usage has actually gone down with the exception of our auditorium facility. Uh, it continues to be used by the public um, for a number of events, for a number of meetings, large group facilities. And, and we want to expand that as well. So we're trying our best to quickly make the things, the upgrades that can be done knowing that Turnbull Library in particular is going to go under a massive renovation project and is going to be closed for a number of months. And so the timing and scheduling also comes into play. I think the first area where we're going to see a, a lot more rolled out is in fact going to be with Florence Williams because the repairs have been done. Gonna, Although I do what we, what have we to... do, Hold on there one second, hold on a second. Uh, Commissioner, we're going to do take a break. I'm going to let you wrap up that question and we come back. We're going to dedicate the last segment to the land and water use plan meetings that's uh, coming up uh, beginning on Tuesday. We'll take a break. Carla, hold on as well. We'll be back right after this. it's happening around the world. NPR's Frank Langford is in London covering this one. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Cuba is experiencing its biggest anti-government protests. If it's happening here at home. On a blistering hot day in Twin Falls, Idaho. Join on the northeast border of Mississippi, where the river nourishes rich and green. Morning edition from NPR News will take you there. Wherever the story is, listen every weekday. From 6 to 8 a.m. here on WTJX FM 93.1. Ability Radio is a program brought to you by the Disability Rights Center of the Virgin Islands to promote a more inclusive Virgin Islands. Ability Radio brings you information on healthcare, art, culture, education, and current affairs, where we engage in lively discussions with guests locally and abroad. Join us every Saturday morning at 11:30 a.m. on WTJX FM. 
days, people go to great lengths to shed the stress of daily life. There's acupuncture, deep tissue massage, meditation, yoga. At All Things Considered, we offer our own type of healing, invigorating news stories that span the rainbow of human experience. Nourish your mind and escape from the ordinary. Weekdays on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 5 to 8 p.m. right here on WTJX FM 93.1. The news nowadays is a bit like our weather, much more extreme. The headlines that grab the most attention generate a lot of heat and not much light. On 1A, we rely on your questions and stories to help us better understand the issues that demand more than a few tweets. With your help, we'll get to the heart of the story together. Catch 1A at its new time, weekdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WTJX FM 93.1. And welcome back uh, to Analyze This here on a beautiful Friday in Paradise. Tonight at 10 p.m. on Channel 12, The Magic of Spirituals. Explore behind the scenes, explore behind the scenes story of Jesse Norman and Kathleen Battle's fame concert at Carnegie Hall on March 18, 1990 in great performances, The Magic of Spirituals with legendary African-American contralto, Marian Anderson in attendance. Many wondered if the two singers would compete or join forces and sing together, showcasing extended excerpts, excerpts of Norman and Badlin performance. The documentary examines the preparation required and the historic concert's enduring impact. New interviews and reminiscences are featured from the concert's producer, Peter Gelb, who is currently the Met, Opera, the Met Opera General Manager, soprano Angel Blue, author and playwright Daryl Pinckney, arranger and composer Evelyn Simpson Currington, Harlem Gospel Singers founder Queen Esther Moreau, Fisk Jubilee Singers musical director Paul T. Kwame, and jazz and opera singer Joyce Limby Smith. The Magic of Spirituals tonight on Channel 12, uh, at 10 p.m. And don't forget, tomorrow night, um, beginning at uh, 9 and 10.30, respectively, we got Frederick Douglass and um, Harriet Tubman documentaries here on Channel 12. Um, so you were saying, uh, Komish, um, large-scale project at um, Turnbull Libraries, and it's going to require a lot of modifications for the public, for those who use the libraries. Correct. It, it's, it's a large-scale construction project um, you know, there's a lot that has been impacted from the storm itself, and we are trying to make the building more resilient. But once we open again, the the new offerings will be there. Um, we're trying to secure monies now to get um, a large scale archival digitization project funded so that we can put more of our historical documents out to the public electronically. Um, So I'll I'll just close with the libraries by saying that, you know, one thing that we have seen uh, and I'm very proud of for my staff is at the regional library in St. Croix, um, you know, we we have a book club that's both in person and sometimes virtual that we do book club with uh, talking books with Nina Garcia, uh, one of our longtime staff. And and that has actually the the caller had talked about 
uh, increase in visitation. And, and that book club has become something that is very popular, um, reading with local authors, reading with members of the community, uh, and then sometimes even offering it virtually. So um, I just want to give kudos to them for coming up with that program and still being able to extend the library offerings out to the community in St. Croix as well. Carla, are you comfortable with the responses? Yes, yes. I, I really thank him very much for, for enlightening the public about the libraries. They can be such a tremendous resource to the community. And I have watched with, with, um, with a heart that is very sad uh, seeing how they're, they're currently so underused. But programming, as, as, he, as Mr. Oreo has just indicated, programming is so very important. And I, I wish you well with that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Molina. I appreciate that. Um, finally, um, you could get uh, library cards online, Kamesh? Um, I believe that's the goal with the rollout of the, the program as well. I, I, right now, no. I mean, I think there is a, you know, it's one of those things where you say, huh, when you have to, like some of the, the mm -hmm. proof of verification for your, to obtain a library card, like you got to bring in like a WAPA bill and that kind of thing. So trying to, um, trying to revamp that. And and make it a little bit easier for people to sign up for. Like agree, agree, agree. What? Let's make sure you take your time and do it right. Because if you rush to yeah. do something to satisfy, yeah. you know, um, a request, and then you don't put in the right kind of structure, you end up with even greater problems. So, yeah, uh, I, I agree with that. So let's get to the let, let me dedicate this last 10, 12 minutes to what we want um, with this land and water use plan tongue meetings. Now, people are gonna have their opinions one way or the other about whether or not a comprehensive land and water use plan is. Uh, realistic and all that stuff. But what are we trying to accomplish with these town meetings, Commission? So, you know, people, I think over the years, you know, I, I hear a lot of things attributed to the comprehensive land and water use plan. And I actually have a, a differing opinion from some of those things that I've heard. Um, but we have to understand that it's a framework that sets sort of the, the stage for how you see the islands developing. As a good example, you know, we live in uh, one of the most beautiful places under the U.S. flag where land is scarce. And so, you know, where you could have um, homes built, you know, by your housing and housing finance authority at a reasonable price of, you know, let's say 150000 for a three-bedroom house, 1,700 square feet. You can't do that anymore. You're talking $450,000, $500,000 for the traditional way that we would build. And so we now have to think about things like building vertically, getting more uh, housing units in in our, in our town areas by going up rather than trying to carve out quarter acre parcels and those types of things. And, and that's what, you know, that the housing component is a part of comprehensive planning. We need to look at what the transportation plans are. Where can we find innovative ways? Do everybody uh, need to drive? You know, one of, the, one of the real interesting things that I remember very early on in my DPNR career was that when Banco Popular was being built in a content area, the reason why it's a three-story uh, parking garage is because they were anticipating park and ride for the top floor for employees to go into town. And that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But 
the structure is there. Why don't we take advantage of that? Why don't we use that? Um, so I think the comprehensive land and water use plan, when it comes to housing, when it comes to um, transportation, when it comes to energy facilities and siting and those types of things, um, that comprehensive plan is is the overarching framework and it's a key tool. But then there are a number of other plans that feed into it for the for the really finite details on how we do those things. And the comprehensive plan is to be reviewed every 10, 15 years to see whether or not we're following it or have things changed societally that we need to make drastic changes to it in order to accommodate those uses. But you don't want to not know where you're trying to go 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Now, during the um, election cycle, this was a question that we posed um, to all the candidates for obvious reasons. Um, the truth is um, we got a problem with spot zoning in the, in the, in the Virgin Islands, Commish. And mm-hmm. a comprehensive land and water use plan actually you know, helps to deter the abuse where spot zoning is concerned, and then and then the misrepresentation of intent, where you have folks coming before the legislature, wanting the legislature to approve a petition for a rezoning or a variance, saying they're gonna do one thing and then they're doing something else without penalty. But you know, uh, 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 that's why the comprehensive land and water use plan is so critical. So and and you know th- that's one of the items that I. I like to have dialogue on with respect to the comprehensive land and water use plan because our, our people's expectations of the comprehensive land and water use plan would not allow spot zoning or not allow variances because the, you know, and, and remember years no, no, ago. Well, well that's, a good, the, that's a good question, but I mean, I'm, yeah. I, I'm not denying that spot zonings and variances serve a purpose. The question is you're, you're misrepresenting your intent. You're saying one thing and doing something else without penalty. That's a problem, right. Commission. And so there's a there's a and there's a key distinction between a change in the zoning, right? Like let's say moving from an R district to a B district mm-hmm. versus a variance, which a variance actually has to come with a development plan. Mm-hmm. And you are getting that plan approved specifically and it doesn't necessarily i don't believe it actually transfers with the land or anything like that and, so, and, and by definition so so the public so we can let the public know because uh a variance is a allowance for a non-conforming use correct okay good. correct we don't want to assume the public knows what we're talking about when we use that term correct. so i just try to i think that, you know so so that's the thing is that is is the expectation because when people talk about the comprehensive land and water use plan they 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 mentioned that it's going to put an end to spot zoning. And I'm like, really? Like, okay, maybe spot zoning, but what about variances? Because are, is, is, is it in our best interest to make something that rigid? Part of the problem that we have right now is that the, um, the land, um, the table of permitted uses for the zoning code is not flexible enough and it and it's very rigid and it's you know one through items one through a hundred and if it doesn't fall here but it shows up in another zone then that's where it's supposed to be and all of that and so you know where that's where now you see people have to go to the legislature 
for that variance or of that use. And, and that's how I believe why we have so many applications for changes is because of the rigidity. So it's, it's one of those questions that I definitely want to hear public discussion on during the town hall meetings, because, you know, there are uses that are probably going to take place 30 years from now, just like in 1972, the zoning code could not attribute for all of the zoning that was taking place in the 2000s. You know, like there, there is no, there's no line item for a zip line in the existing table of permitted uses. Mm-hmm. But zip lines are something that are recreational activities. And, you know, you, we've had a number of applications for them here in this territory. And people, you know, the, the entire North Shore of, of uh, St. Thomas is zoned R1. But should we not allow a zip line activity to take place? Something as minimally impactive like that? So let, let me, that's what I'm saying that. We have to we have to really think about how rigid or flexible do we want uh, some of these things, and then what does that process look like? I'd be very interested in hearing from, you know, the 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 legislative branch on whether or not they want to continue being the ones that execute those zoning changes or variances. Because in the seventies and eighties, the legislature was not the entity that did that. The legislature changed that in the early nineties to make them front-facing on that process. So One one final quick question from Akala. Uh, Akala, we run out of time. You have a quick question for the commission? Yes, I have a question. Yes, go ahead. Oh, uh, good morning, Commissioner. Yeah. Good. Hi, my name is Sal Sanpere. How are you doing? Uh, right, fine, thank you. I, I was always, and maybe I'm in the wrong impression, is that when the government, uh, when we get federal money, so we requested to put it, put up 10%, am I correct, for any development that is uh, federally funded? And we just on, the, at the, beginning just on the PW side, like the FEMA has a 90-10 cost share split. Right. So my question is this. Let's say the government gives us money to build a road like the bypass. Well, the company is going to build the road. It's going to pay taxes. The workers are going to get wages. They're going to pay taxes. Wherever they spend the money is going to pay taxes. Uh, don't those taxes come up to at least ten percent of revenue to the government? Um, you know, I I can't say for sure exactly whether or not it comes up to that. Um, I the, the, there's one thing I do know: there's five percent for the gross receipts on there, um, and the but, gross receipt tax also. Everybody got to pay. I I can't say that it for sure ends up. Uh, being recycled back into being able to pay that, um, but but that's on the back. But that's on the back end, though. The, the payment of taxes on yeah. the back end, Mr. Sam yeah. Perry. Uh, I think the the ten percent obligation is a front end requirement from the government. Yeah, I was just thinking if somebody give give the, give us a million dollars to build that bypass, that million dollars immediately is going to start producing taxes. No, I, I, no, you're you're absolutely correct. The, the, the taxes are going to exceed ten percent in total, but I, I think sure. but I think they're looking for that hundred thousand on our part up front. But the other part to think about too is that the you know not every single line item from this department goes back into this entity because mm-hmm. there are a number of non-revenue generating activities that the government has to fund. Mm-hmm. For example, libraries. 
We have five libraries. We have one of the most modern facilities in Turnbull Library at an operating budget of $3 million a year. Um, you don't collect $3 million in checking out books to pay for that operating No, budget. obviously not in that one. And so, I don't remember that's what I mean. That, that, uh, those taxes that we collect go into yeah. operating the government, Correct. not just like public works now goes back into public works. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Yeah, no, that, that's, no, no that, that's a general fund. That's a, that's and a, that, and that, not that. only that, we build an airport and then we rent those spaces to airlines and others. We will make revenue forever. Yeah, well, that, that's how it works. Uh, Mr. Samperi, thanks for the question. Yeah. Anyway, excellent, excellent question. I appreciate that. Okay. Um, you got it. Enjoy the weekend. Um, Mr. Uh, Komish, I need a favor. Can I can I get you for twenty minutes on Monday morning? Uh, Monday, I am. What time? Um, I'm, already, I'm I'm already scheduled from seven thirty to at least at least nine o'clock. No, no, no. I'm talking like nine twenty from nine twenty to nine forty on Monday. So 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 we could so we could give some more details in terms of town meetings and all that stuff. Nine twenty to nine forty. Okay. Think yeah, about yeah, just look, look at your schedule. Look at your schedule and and let the contact person know and let them get back to me. Okay, yeah, because the I because the meeting start on Tuesday, correct? Yes, meeting start on Tuesday. Yeah, so 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 look at look at your schedule. Let them get back to me so you could be a part of the table talk with the other senators for twenty minutes, if possible. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Komish. Appreciate you. Um, great show today, man. Way to end the week. Thank you to the Children's Museum and thank you to DPNR. Be good, be safe, and um, the weather service in San Juan. Talk to you on Monday, God willing. Bye bye. The views and opinions expressed on Analyze This are entirely those of the on-air participants and do not reflect those of the station's board, management, staff, or underwriters. During a busy day, it can be hard to make room for even one more thing. So it's a real plus that All Things Considered from NPR News is great for multitaskers. You can confidently add being well-informed to your to-do list and know that you will get it done. Whether you're cleaning out your junk drawer on a quick drive or something else, listen to All Things Considered every weekday afternoon. From 5 to 8 p.m. right here on WTJX FM 93.1. He said that black smoke was constantly coming out of the burn pits 24-7. And my reaction to it was like, wow, that doesn't sound very safe. Wonder what that's about. And in my mind, I couldn't imagine at the time that type of system operating could potentially harm our service members. Journalism that seeks and reveals. That's On Point with me, Magna Chakrabarty. Weekdays at 1 p.m. on WTJX FM 93.1. Your NPR station in the Virgin Islands.